This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hey there, this episode contains just the tiniest bit of salty language. Okay, here's the show. Eric Umansky is an editor at ProPublica works on the Trump Inc. podcast with WNYC. And back in the summer, he started noticing these stories in the New York Times, in BuzzFeed, stories about Rudy Giuliani pushing to get Ukraine's help securing Donald Trump's re-election. I remember reading it honestly and looking at it. I mean, just like my honest thing, I was like, wait, on the one hand, I had this internal voice being like, wait, this is a big deal because it's... I think it's the president's lawyer suborning foreign policy for political interests. I think. But not everybody is saying that. So, like, am I missing something here? And, like, oh, look, there's another tab. There's another story. I got to go to that. Okay. And you are an investigative editor. How long have you been doing this? I've been doing it a long time. When Eric says he's been doing this a long time, he means 20 plus years. And still, He'd look at these stories and think, in Trump's Washington, is this a big deal? But this early reporting, it was undoubtedly the first draft of the story we all can't stop talking about now. The story of a president who seems to be enlisting a foreign government to interfere in domestic politics. Looking back, it's hard not to wonder what made the whistleblower's version of the story so much stickier. I think it's like some weird combination of... This is simpler to understand. It's an accretion of things. It happened at the moment. Also, people in power, which is to say political power, Nancy Pelosi, and then I think people in the media and top decided it was a scandal. This was the thing. And then it gets elevated and then we're like, holy shit, look at the thing. And at that point, All the facts that were sort of like in the air and that we sort of vaguely knew about but didn't quite understand, you then see them in this new prism of understanding, oh, okay, this is the scandal I'm supposed to pay attention to. And you realize, oh, it's all been out there, but like we just couldn't process it. Today on the show, what happens when bad behavior is hiding in plain sight? Eric and I are going to talk about why it feels like even journalists who had the Ukraine story missed the Ukraine story. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. Hey, listener. One more thing before we get the rest of the show started. Do you want to meet up sometime? Because next month I am hosting a very special live show at the Bell House in Brooklyn. I'm going to be talking to Slate's amazing crew of female journalists about the upcoming election. Virginia Heffernan is going to be there from Trumpcast. Dahlia Lithwick from Amicus is going to be there, too. So will Nicole Perkins from Thirst Aid Kit. And I'm also hoping that you are going to be there. So mark your calendar Wednesday, November 20th at 7 p.m. and go get your tickets. Go to slate.com live and I will see you there. This episode is brought to you by Discover. 
When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. It was back in May when one of the first stories cropped up connecting President Trump and Ukraine. It ran on the front page of The New York Times, and it was headlined, For Biden, a Ukraine matter that won't go away. In that story itself, there's this little buried thing that I sort of counted. I think it was in the 12th or 13th paragraph. In the story that's headlined about Biden, right, it says that Rudy had been meeting with a Ukrainian prosecutor. A Ukrainian prosecutor, by the way, who everybody has agreed he's corrupt, right? Eventually fired for that corruption. When you say everyone. Uh, The EU... The anti-corruption groups in Ukraine, the Obama administration, I don't know, that seems like a sort of solid list so far. So Rudy is meeting with this guy who has a checkered background and pushing him to, in fact, investigate Biden, right? So this is in the 13th paragraph, but here's the key thing that is mentioned in this. According to the prosecutor, Rudy calls the president during that time. During their meeting? Mm-hmm. And says, let me loop you in on this. This is very exciting development. Very exciting development. We are going to dig into Joe Biden and his family and all this stuff. And I am psyched that we're all on board. Right? And that is, again, in the 13th paragraph of a story that's headlined about questions about Joe Biden. And a few days later... Giuliani really makes a splash. He basically is the sole subject of another article in the New York Times. Right. A a few days later, to the New York Times great credit, uh, and it's Ken Vogel who did both stories, they do an excellent story, probably the best story that had been done for months and that would be done for months about Rudy Giuliani's foreign. um, The hook was that he was planning on going to Ukraine to talk to all these prosecutors. And this raises serious questions. And there's actually a quote. There are these awesome quotes from Giuliani where he says, some might think this is a problem. And he also says, well, we are not interfering in an election. We're interfering in an investigation. (laughs) It really does feel like you're there, like watching him pack his bags and he's about to go on a jaunt. Right. So it's this great article. That is the article that prompts Chris Murphy, Senator Murphy, to say, what is going on here? And Giuliani cancels the trip under heat. And, you know, sort of like that's that, right? Again, God even knows what scandal was happening or what news was happening in May, right? Subsequently, we learn what ends up happening with Giuliani is, okay, he doesn't go. Two of his associates go. Hmm. I wonder how you think about the work of the reporter here, Ken Vogel, because you're right that it was some of the first reporting of all of this nonsense in Ukraine and and what Giuliani and the president were up to. But he's caught some heat for how he framed it and whether he pointed in the right directions. Do you think that's fair or do you think that's really what it is to be in the muck of a story that you're still figuring out? I, I think it's sort of a mistake to focus on one person in that sense, right? It's, 
you know, I mean, just even on a most basic level, um, when you turn in a story, right, particularly a place like the New York Times, which has very close editing, particularly on a story of this kind of importance, you know, it's an institution that's making decisions about this. It also just speaks to this larger question of what's in front of us and what we can see. The facts that are in front of us and then actually like understanding something, right? So the fact that this thing was buried, that Trump was in apparently in on a call with Rudy and this Ukrainian prosecutor to dig into Biden, you know, the fact that that was in the 13th paragraph, that's not about one person, right? Hmm. That's about like a whole sort of series of people sort of failing to understand the import of what was right in front of us. Fast forward to this week, and we've got a different problem. Lots of stories, almost too many stories that are impeachment adjacent. Things we've known before that are suddenly news. Like just this week, Attorney General Barr made headlines. He seems to have been asking foreign dignitaries to undermine the Mueller report. So I asked Eric, does he consider that story news? It's I think much more incremental news than we understand. I think it's another example of seeing something in a new light. So what we've always known or what, what's been public for a number of months is that on behalf of the president, the attorney general has announced an investigation into our own intelligence agency's conclusion and investigation of uh, Russian interference in the 2016 election, right? And it's based on this theory that it was somehow spying, that it was improper. It was begun with sort of poison fruit of disinformation. And again, no evidence to support that, but there's a U.S. attorney that has been named to look into that. All public. And, you know, that's a thing that we've long known about. So what we now know is that the attorney general has been calling up and meeting with Alice. He actually went to Italy last week. This sort of did blow my mind. He went to Italy last week to ask for their help in this, right? So, he was there while all this was breaking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's nice to be in Italy while you got a bunch of stuff dealing at home. So we now know that he was, you know, asking for help from foreign governments. But we've long known that they are... Um, have launched a real investigation into the investigators. Well, here's the thing, which is I noticed you retweeting this Turning Point USA columnist, Benny Johnson. He was noticing the same thing you are. Right. So this is this is sort of like one of these. I don't even know through the looking glass. It's not even right. Right. So I was like, oh, my God, the attorney general was raising this, you know, uh, last week. And this guy tweets back at me and says, no, 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 no. You guys got it all wrong. It's not some secret campaign. Look, here's video of Trump urging Australia and others to look into this all the way back in May. Right. He did it publicly. Here's an interview. And it was like, you know, one of these uh, things he does outside of Marine One, outside of the helicopter. And I hope he looks at the UK and I hope he looks at Australia and I hope he looks at Ukraine. I hope he looks at everything because there was a hoax that was perpetrated on our country. You know, his response to that is, see, no big deal. Right. Except, of course, the right response to that is, 
holy shit, the president in May was calling for allies to investigate our own intelligence agencies. But this seems like the crux of the problem to me, because because journalists and stakeholders were presenting the facts, but not necessarily shaping it for people. It means the meaning is being derived by whoever's telling the story. And that means that for a long time, we had the story, but we didn't know what it meant. Yep. And that, by the way, is the job of journalism, right? To not just bring facts to light, but to help you understand them and to convey their import, right? We use judgment. This is how big of us just on a very simple level of, well, how big do we play this story? How big of a headline? Where do we play this story? And and that is really where you can see this difference where it's it's not about the facts, right? It's it's about the sort of perception and import with which we play them. But there's another thing that's making it difficult for journalists to sort through this news. It's the Trump administration's habit of openly defending actions that other officials might not want to acknowledge at all. Remember, earlier this summer, the president had no problem saying he welcomed foreign meddling in the political process. If foreigners, if Russia, if China, if someone else offers you information on an opponent, should they accept it or should they call the FBI? I think maybe you do both. I think you might want to listen. I don't, there's nothing wrong with listening. If somebody called from a country, Norway, we have information on your opponent. Oh, I think I'd want to hear it. You want that kind of interference in our elections? It's not an interference. They have information. I think I'd take it. If I thought there was something wrong, I'd go maybe to the FBI if I thought there was something wrong. But when somebody comes up with APA research, right, they come up with APA research. Oh, let's call the FBI. The FBI doesn't have enough agents to take care of it. But you go and talk honestly to congressmen. They all do it. They always have. And that's the way it is. It's called oppo research. So let's get back to George. There are actually two things that happen, right? One is that we just sort of cognitively think like, I don't know, if a president is talking about something publicly, it can't be that much of a scandal. It also devalues the information in a funny way for journalists, right, in in a very practical and self-interested way, which is that if you're the only person that finds out about the phone call, you have an enormous scoop, right? And you're going to go to the ends of the earth to pound the details out of that and to play it big, right? This is your moment. If you're writing that the president on the White House lawn said that allies should investigate our own intelligence agencies and it's on Twitter, I don't know. Maybe you write that and like maybe you just like go out to coffee because somebody else writes it. But it seems like journalism isn't really prepared for this strategy. You know, there have there have been requests in the last week or so, for instance, from the Biden campaign saying, don't book Rudy Giuliani on your show because he's going to come on and he's going to say things that are untrue. And even no matter how much you push back, it's going to be out there. And I wonder what you think of that strategy, because it's silencing someone. But at the same time, how do we deal with the information otherwise? Like, how do we do it better? Yeah, I think it's a tremendously hard problem. I mean, I'm a big believer in contextualizing things. You know, you don't put the raw 
quotes out there. You always contextualize it. And, you know, in, in text, we have the privilege of doing that much more easily than you do on, say, live TV, right? But I don't know. Do you just simply cut off the air for these folks? Maybe. Maybe you really push yourself. You know, there were some tremendous interviews that were done over the weekend with... Uh, Representative Jim Jordan. Correct. You know, where hosts really pushed them and showed that they didn't have a command of the material, that they were, you know, I mean, spinning as a generous term. I think that that is instructive for a lot of people to see. But you're setting a standard that is not being met right now. I'm just I'm just telling you what happened. Joe Biden. No, you're not. Up and said, fire this prosecutor or you're not getting it. No, in. you're suggesting that Biden called for the prosecutor should be fired to protect and his president, son. And president. That's not what happened. And President Trump says, oh, can you help me? You say that the current situation that we're in right now with this whistleblower complaint, you compare it to how we came to realize torture was wrong during the Iraq war. Yeah. I wonder if you can talk about that a little bit. Sure. So um, in another life, I really dug into this exact same dynamic in terms of the coverage of torture. And it really followed a lot of the similar paths. So, for example, you had a lot of facts about the U.S. mistreatment and torture of detainees that were known. Not all of them. Right. Not all of them by any means, um, but a lot of facts. We knew about stress positions, quote unquote. We knew about what's called CIA dark prisons. We knew that detainees had died in custody. And yet we didn't play it as a scandal. We didn't put the headlines on it. So if I could just give one very quick example, because it has always, always stuck with me in this is 2002. Right. Two Afghan detainees die in U.S. custody. And a New York Times reporter is like, well, gee, that's weird, and Hmm. goes to report it and um, talks with the family and sees a death certificate that says the cause was homicide. Homicide? Homicide. Literally says homicide. Yep. Later we learn that this is literally according to the um, autopsy, I think. Um, his legs had been beaten so severely that they were essentially pulpified. <gasps> so, um, sorry for that detail. But um, this reporter, Carlotta Gall, writes the story. And the editor at the time, Roger Cohn, pitches it to uh, page one and it gets rejected. And he pitches it again and it gets rejected again. And ultimately, the story runs on page 13 with a headline that says something like U.S. investigating detainee deaths, right? The investigation had been caused because the reporter was asking questions. And, you know, it wasn't a front page story. Um, It wasn't played as a scandal. And yet these essential facts were there. And in the case of torture, it wasn't until photos of mistreatment at Abu Ghraib came out that we snapped to attention and the narrative shifted. Then once the narrative shifts, you see all these facts in New Light. Oh, we knew about, you know, this. Uh, there was a, then stories about what happened to this detainee, and that was a big thing. And CIA dark prisons, and that was a big thing. And stress positions, and on and on. You know, the, when the narrative changes, 
and this is the same thing that's happened with Ukraine, you then take all, you can report these new facts and fit them into the narrative that has then become the dominant narrative, that torture is a scandal, that this Ukraine thing is a scandal. That is a much easier cognitive task in many ways than to be the journalist or the outlet or even the politician who says this thing that we haven't been paying attention to, we all need to understand this as a scandal. That's a much harder cognitive uh, uh, sort of work and much riskier thing professionally than to say, oh, yeah, here's another bit of this thing that we already all agree is a scandal. I hear what you're saying, which is that we had all the information and we didn't act. I'm curious who you think the we is in that, whether you look at journalists, whether you look at people in government, like more attention should have been paid to this story, but by whom? I think it is by both the political class and, yeah, by journalists. And I want to be clear, I don't think, and it's too reductive to say, it was all out there and we just needed to pay attention. It, It was not all out there. And the fact that there was a phone call in which, you know, Trump said, I need a favor, right? That's meaningful and that's significant. But I think that it is worth asking ourselves and just understanding the dynamic that why weren't we digging more? And is that simply because the facts weren't out there or because we weren't understanding it in the right light? What do we pay attention to and why and why do we call some things a scandal and why do we play a thing big on page one? Let's sort of take a moment to think about the choices we're making. Eric Umansky, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Eric Umansky is deputy managing editor at ProPublica. He's also the editor of the Trump Inc. podcast, a show that looks at the business of Trump and his administration. It just so happens that Trump Inc. is dropping a new episode today, and co-host Ilya Meretz was in Ukraine, reporting on Giuliani's dealings there. Eric says Ilya came back with some pretty interesting details. But actually, one of the other things that Ilya did is go to the president's mansion, which is much more of like an estate and which is now a museum of corruption. And truly, though, like a literal museum of corruption, a literal museum of corruption, though, as Ilya points out, it's not actually publicly owned. It's owned by a mysterious LLC. We don't know where the money is going to. So it's like it's like some serious meta corruption that's going on. Trump Inc. dropped a new episode today, so make sure you check it out. All right, that's the show. What Next is produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, Daniel Hewitt, and Mara Silvers. What do you think of what we're up to? Let us know. Go on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating and a review. You can also just tweet at me. I'm at Mary's desk. I'm Mary Harris. I will talk to you tomorrow.